0: Chapter 13 of the Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a Guide for Those Who Travel in the Wilderness, by Horace Keffhart. Chapter 13. Forest Travel Keeping a Course. Quonabashwal Mont Boric, Quonaboric Mont Cabri, pas Cabri Mont Jean. When you have no horse, you ride a donkey. When you have no donkey, you ride a goat. When you have no goat, you ride your legs. Creole saying. In walking through a primitive forest, an Indian or a white woodsman can wear out a town-bred athlete, although the latter may be the stronger man. This is because a man who is used to the woods has a knack of walking over uneven and slippery ground, edging through thickets, and worming his way amid fallen timber, with less fret and exertion than one who is accustomed to smooth, unobstructed paths. HOW TO WALK There is somewhat the same difference between a townsman's and a woodsman's gait as there is between a soldier's and a sailor's. It is chiefly a difference of hip action looseness of joints, and the manner of planting one's feet. A townsman's stride is an up-and-down knee action, with rather rigid hips, the toes pointing outward, and the heel striking first. The carriage is erect, the movement springy and graceful, so long as one is walking over firm, level footing. But beware the banana peel and the small boy's sliding place. This is an ill-poised gait, because one's weight falls first upon the heel alone and at that instant the walker has little command of his balance. It is an exhausting gait as soon as its normally short pace is lengthened by so much as an inch. A woodsman, on the contrary, walks with a rolling motion. His hips swaying an inch or more to the stepping side, and his pace is correspondingly long. This hip action may be noticed to an exaggerated degree in the stride of a professional pedestrian but the latter walks with a heel-and-toe step, whereas an Indian or sailor's step is more nearly flat-footed. In the latter case, the center of gravity is covered by the whole foot. The poise is as secure as that of a rope-walker. The toes are pointed straight-forward, or even a trifle inward, so that the inside of the heel, the outside of the ball, of the foot, and the smaller toes, all do their share of work and assist in balancing. Walking in this manner one is not so likely either to trip over projecting roots, stones, and other traps, as he would be if the feet formed hooks by pointing outward. The necessity is obvious in snowshoeing. A fellow sportsman, H. G. Dulog, once remarked, quote, If the Indian were turned to stone while in the act of stepping, the statue would probably stand balanced on one foot. This gait gives the limbs great control over his movements, he is always poised. If a stick cracks under him, it is because of his weight, and not by reason of the impact. He goes silently on, and with great economy of force. His steady balance enables him to put his moving foot down as gently as you would lay an egg on the table. Unquote. There is another advantage in walking with toes pointing straight ahead instead of outwards. One gains ground at each stride i have often noticed that an Indian stride gains in this manner as well as from his rolling motion of the hips the white man acquires this habit if he ever gets it but an indian is moulded to it in the cradle if you examine the way in which a papoose is bound to its cradle-board this will be made clear immediately after birth the infant is stretched out on the board its bow-legged little limbs are laid as straight as possible and the feet are placed exactly perpendicular and close together before being swaddled. Often the squaw removes the bandages and gently drags and works on the baby's limbs and spine to make them as straight as possible. Then, in rebandaging, care is always taken that the toes shall point straight forward. The custom of wearing moccasins also increases the normal stride beyond what it would be if one wore boots. Overstrain when carrying a pack on your back, do not overexert yourself. Halt whenever your breathing is very labored or exertion becomes painful. Rig your pack at the start so that it can be flung off whenever you sit down for a moment's rest. It pays. Nobody who understands horses would think of driving them ahead when they show signs of distress, and there is quite as much common sense in treating yourself with the same consideration, if you want to travel far. Overexertion is particularly disastrous in mountain climbing. Care of the Feet One who is unused to long marches may get along pretty well the first day, but on the second morning it will seem as if he could not drag one foot after the other. This is the time when the above remarks do not apply, for if one uses the gad and goes ahead he will soon limber up. But by the morning of the third day it is likely that complications will have set in the novice by this time is worn, not only from unaccustomed exertion, but from loss of sleep, for few men sleep well the first night or two in the open. He is probably constipated from change in diet, and from drinking too much on the march. More serious still, he probably has sore feet. This latter ailment is not so much due to his feet being tender at the start, as from his not having taken proper care of them. Aside from the downright necessity of seeing that one's shoes and stockings fit well, and that the shoes were well broken in before starting, there are certain rules of pedestrian hygiene that should be observed from the word go. Every morning, before starting, dust some tail powder inside your stockings, or rub some Vaseline, tallow, or soap on the inside of them. Then wash your feet every evening, preferably in hot, salted water, and if they feel strained, rub them with whiskey. The underwear should also be dusted inside with powdered soapstone, or otherwise treated like the stockings, at all places where the garments are likely to chafe. Socks should be washed every other day. If a blister has formed on the foot, do not merely prick it and squeeze the water out, but thread a needle with soft cotton or worsted Draw the latter partly through the blister, snip off the ends about one-fourth inch from the blister, and leave the thread there to act as a drainage tube. Then cover the part with a soft, clean rag, greased with Vaseline or tallow rubbed up with a little whiskey. This will prevent the skin being rubbed off, and a consequent, painful wound. Corns may be removed by a plaster of pine turpentine, not spirits, but the raw sap of the tree. Thirst in warm weather, one's first few days in the open air will bring an inordinate thirst, which is not caused by the stomach's demand for water, but by a fever of the palate. This may be relieved somewhat by chewing a green leaf, or by carrying a smooth, non-absorbent pebble in the mouth. But a much better thirst quencher is a bit of raw onion carried in the mouth. One can go a long time without drinking if he has an onion with him this also prevents one's lips from cracking in alkali dust drink as often as you please but not very much at a time if the water is cold sip it slowly so as not to chill the stomach never try to satisfy thirst by swallowing snow or ice melt the snow first by holding it in the mouth if no fire can be made rough travel the way to find game or to get the best of anything else that the forest hides is not to follow well-beaten paths. One must often make his own trails, and go where the going is hardest. As he travels through the unknown woods he may come, now and then, to a glade where the trees do not crowd each other, where the undergrowth is sparse and the view so unobstructed that he can see to shoot for a hundred yards in any direction. Such spots may be about as common relatively as are safe anchorage and deep-water harbours along the coast. But most of the time a wanderer in the forest primeval must pick a way for his feet over uneven ground that is covered with stubs, loose stones, slippery roots, crooked saplings, mixed downwood, and tough thorny vines. He is forever busy seeking openings, parting bushes, brushing away cobwebs, fending off springy branches, crawling over or under fallen trees, working around impenetrable tangles, or trying to find a footlog or a ford. There is no such thing as a shortcut. It is beyond the power of man to steer a straight course or to keep up a uniform cadence of his steps. Unless the traveler knows his ground, there is no telling when he may come to a windfall, where several acres of big timber have been overthrown by a hurricane and the great trees lay piled across each other in an awkward snarl. Or maybe there is an alder thicket or a cedar swamp in the way, or a canebrake or a cypress slough or a laurel or rhododendron slick wherein a man will soon exhaust his strength to no purpose if he be so unwise as to try to force a passage a brouillard or burnt wood is a nasty place to pass through every foot of ground that is not covered by charred snags or fallen trunks and limbs bristles with a new growth of fireweed blackberry and raspberry briars young red cherries white birches poplars quaking aspens scrub oaks or gray pines when the fire has occurred on one of those barren ridges that was covered with dwarfish oaks post black or blackjack the sharp fire-hardened studs of limbs protrude like bayonets at the height of one's face menacing his eyes an old quote, lumberjack works unquote, where the trees have been chopped out leaving nothing but stumps tree-trops and other debris grows up with the same rank tenets as a burnt wood and is as mean to flounder through. As a general rule, a mile and a half an hour of actual progress is making good time in the woods. Use of Divides Rivers are often spoken of as having been man's natural highways in the days before railroads. This was true only to a limited extent. A few great rivers, such as the Hudson, the Ohio, the Mississippi, and the Missouri, were highways for downstream travel and smaller waterways were and still are used in the summer muske county of the north where land travel is impractical until everything freezes up but the general rule of aboriginal travel was to keep away from streams and follow the ridges between them this rule still holds when a party travels afoot or with pack train in a country where there are no bridges a glance at the accompanying diagram will show why in this figure a g represents a river and c f the main divide or summit of watershed separating it from another river basin it is assumed that a party of foot or with horses desires to advance from a to g evidently if they try to follow either bank of the main stream they will have many fords to make not only crossing tributaries here and there but fording or swimming the main stream itself many times where cliffs bogs, or impenetrable thickets make one of the banks impassable. If the region through which the river runs is wide-bottomed land, the mouths of its tributaries are likely to be deep, or to run over fathomless mud as dangerous as quicksand, and this will necessitate long detours. The vegetation up to the very bank of the river will be exceedingly rank A wretched tangle of bushes, vines, briars, and tall grass, and fallen trees will be plentiful and large. At any time a heavy rainstorm may send the river out of its banks, and the party may find itself marooned where it can neither go forward nor backward. On the other hand, if the river runs through a mountainous country, it is probable that the travelers will come to a canyon that will compel them to retreat. In any case, the party will never have an outlook it will never know what lies beyond the next bend of the river a comparatively easy way around all of these difficulties is shown in the dotted line abdeg leaving the river by a ridge that leads to the main divide and following the crest to a similar abutting ridge that runs down to the valley at the objective point there will be no fords to make the footing will be much better because vegetation is thinner on the more sterile windswept heights the fallen trees will be smaller there will be no mud or quicksand or miry bogs and every here and there a of vantage will be climbed from which a far outlook can be had over the surrounding country the chief precaution to be observed in trying to follow a divide where there is no trail or where there are many intersecting trails is not to stray off on some abutting ridge this as the points b and d there may be in each case a gap between the knolls or peaks, and the lead to the left might easily be mistaken for the main divide. If the party were enticed along either of these leads on account of its tending in the desired direction, they would soon find themselves in a cul-de-sac. Mountain Climbing The city man's gait, to which I have already referred, is particularly exhausting in mountain climbing. He is accustomed to spring from the toe of the lower foot in going uphill. That throws nearly the whole weight of the body upon the muscles of the calf of the leg, a misadjustment of strain that would soon wear out even a native mountaineer. The latter walks uphill with a woodsman's gait, planting the whole foot on the ground, and swinging or rolling his hip at each stride, thus not only gaining an inch or two in his pace, but distributing the strain between several groups of muscles in dense mountaineering are given some useful hints to climbers that i take the liberty of considering here in walking up a steep hill go slowly and steadily if you cannot talk without catching your breath it is a sure sign that you are going too fast if you slip on a loose stone do not try to recover your lost ground quickly but slip away until your foot is checked a few inches lower thus keep up the rhythm of your footfalls on an average mountain where the slope is tolerably uniform and the climber has no long journey before him an ascent of one thousand feet in an hour is quick travelling in beginning a long climb eight hundred feet of vertical ascent in an hour is good work on a good trail for a moderate distance fifteen hundred feet an hour is quick walking under favorable conditions, a good climber can ascend from a height of 7,000 to 14,000 feet in 7 hours. At greater altitudes, the pace will slacken. In descending a mountain, the pace, however slow, should be continuous. To remain stationary even for a moment not only necessitates a fresh start, but demands an adjustment of balance which implies an unnecessary outlay of muscular effort. To descend rapidly and safely without exertion, a certain looseness of joints should be cultivated. On a steep slope, one should descend sideways, so that the whole length of the foot can be planted fairly on any hole that offers. A man will never sprain his ankle when he expects to do so at any moment, nor will he be likely to slip if he is always preparing to fall. Foot Logs If you have to cross a deep, rocky ravine or dangerous mountain stream by passing over a high foot log, or fallen tree, then, if the log is tilted at an uncomfortable angle, or if its surface is wet or icy, or treacherous with loose bark, or if, for any reason, you fear dizziness or faintness, don't be ashamed to get down and straddle the log, hunching yourself along with hands and thighs. Let your companions laugh, if they will. It is not nice to break a limb or a jar when you are in a country so rough that your comrades may have to pack you out by each in turn carrying you on his own back and crawling with you. BREAKING A TRAIL When a man ventures into strange woods far from settlements, he should blaze a tree here and there along his course, and between the blazes every now and then he should bend a green bush over in the direction he is going, snapping the stem or clipping it with a hatchet, by letting it adhere by the bark, so that the underside of the bushy top will look at him when he returns. The underside of the leaves, being of lighter shade than the upper, makes such a bush sign conspicuous in the woods. Marks like these can be made without slackening one's pace. Have it mutually understood that a single blaze on a tree is always to be made on the side away from camp, and that if the side towards camp is marked at all, it should be with two blazes. Even when a man is bewildered, he can remember, a blaze means away from, two blazes means toward. Never leave your bed without making sure that you have your pocketbook, jackknife watch, and your waterproof matchbox filled. Make a practice of loading the ladder, if it needs it, every night when you wind your watch. In cold weather, do not leave camp without your hunting hatchet. If you leave a boat for the purpose of hunting along the bank, the while the boat drifts on her way have it understood by your companions that you will blaze a tree on the bank about every half mile then they can keep on downstream as long as they pass fresh blazes signals in a treeless country piles of rocks or freshly upturned earth can be used or signals that will attract attention from a general distance can be made with smoke from one to three smudges being made according to a prearranged code. The distress signal with a gun is a shot, a pause, and then two shots in quick succession. It is disregarded until after, say, 4 p.m., at which hour the campkeeper in a fixed camp should blow his horn. The gunshot code is reversed in some countries. Learn what is the custom in the land where you travel, but in any case have some signal agreed upon so that your comrades will understand it. SAMENESS OF THE FOREST All dense woods look very much alike. Trees of all species grow very tall in a forest that has never been cut over, their trunks being commonly straight and slender, with no branches within, say, forty feet of the ground. This is because they cannot live without sunlight for their leaves, and they can only reach sunlight by growing tall like their neighbors that crowd around them. As the young tree shoots upwards, its lower limbs atrophy and drop off to some extent the characteristic marking of the trunk that distinguishes the different species when they grow in the open and to a greater extent their characteristic habits of branching are neutralized when they grow in dense forests consequently a man who can readily tell one species from another in open country by their bark and branching habits may be puzzled to distinguish them in an aboriginal forest moreover the lichens and mosses that cover the boles of trees in the deep shade of a primitive wood give them a sameness of aspect so that there is some excuse for the novice who says that all trees look alike to him the knowledge of trees that can be gained first from books and secondly from studies of trees themselves in city parks or in country woodlots must be supplemented by considerable experience in the real wilderness before one can say with confidence by merely glancing at the bark, this is a soft maple, and the other is a sugar-tree. And yet I do not know any study that, in the long run, would be more serviceable to the amateur woodman than to get a good manual of American trees, and then go about identifying the species in his neighborhood. Having gained some facility in this, then let him turn to studying peculiarities of individual growth, such self-training which can be carried on almost anywhere. Will make him observant of a thousand and one little marks and characteristics that are signboards and street numbers in the wilds. Sense of direction. This sort of knowledge has direct bearing upon the art of following a course or retracing one's course in the wilderness. We hear much about the extraordinary bump of locality, the phenomenal memory of landmarks, the preternatural sense of direction of certain woodcraftsmen. I do not like those phrases if by them is meant that certain men are born with a gift a sixth sense that is denied to others i do not believe that any man is a quote, born woodsman unquote. in the act of wilderness travel as in other things some men are more adept than others who have had equal advantages and a few possess almost uncanny powers amounting to what we call genius to my notion this means nothing more than that some individuals are quicker to observe than others reason more surely from cause to effect and keep their minds more alert and i believe that this is far more due to taking unusual interest in their surroundings than to any partiality of mother nature in distributing her gifts what to notice after a novice has had some preliminary training of the kind i have indicated so that all things in the woods no longer look alike to him he will meet another difficulty his memory will be swamped it is utterly impossible for any man whether he be red white black or piebald to store up in his mind all the woodland marks and signs that one can see in a mile's tramp to say nothing of the infinite diversity that he encounters in a long journey now here is just where a skilled woods has an advantage over any and all amateurs he knows what is common, and pays no attention to it. He knows what is uncommon, it catches his eye at once, and it interests him, so that he need make no effort to remember the thing. This disregard for the common eliminates at once three-fourths, perhaps nine-tenths of the trees, plants, rocks, etc., from his consideration. It relieves his memory of just that much burden. He will pass a hundred birch trees without a second glass, until his eye is riveted by a curly birch. Why riveted? Because curly birch is valuable. In the bottom-lands he will scarcely see a sour gum, or a hundred of them, but let him come across one such tree on top of the ridge, and he will wonder how it chanced to stray so far from home. And so on, through all categories of woodland features. A woodsman notices such things infallibly and with as little conscious effort as a woman notices the crumbs and lint in her neighbor's carpet. AVERAGE WINDINGS A compass is like a pistol, seldom used but invaluable in an emergency. Ordinarily, a traveler in the forest does not use a compass. In fact, I never knew a native of the wilderness who ever used one. He relies chiefly on the sun and the general lay of the land to guide him. In thick woods, cane breaks, swamps, big thickets, and other places where the course is necessarily very tortuous a compass is of no use while one is on the march whenever the traveller can get an outlook he fixes on some landmark in advance notes how the sun strikes him when facing the mark and thenceforth averages up his windings as well as he can the compass is only of service where he can no longer see the sun and is in doubt as to the direction he is travelling in in the wilderness one never knows when he may want to retrace his steps. Hence, when passing anything that has particularly caught his eye, let him turn and see how it looks from the other side. Celestial Guides To find the sun on a cloudy day, hold a knife blade perpendicularly on the thumbnail, or a watch case, and slowly twirl it around. It will cast a faint shadow, unless the day is very dark. Choose an open spot in the woods for this, rather than under the trees, and don't try it near noon, when scarcely any shadow would be cast anyway. To determine the points of the compass from a watch, the watch being set at local, that is sun, time, then, when the sun is shining, turn the face of the watch to the sun in such position that the hour hand shall point to the sun. Halfway between the hour hand and twelve o'clock will then be the south point. South of the equator, this would indicate the north point when the sun is near the zenith, this method is of little use. To find the polar star, in the constellation of the Great Bear, the seven stars called the Dipper never set. Two stars, forming the front of the Dipper's bowl, point towards a conspicuously bright star almost in line with them, and higher, which is Polaris, the North Star. When rough and ready methods of determining the meridian are not precise enough for one's purpose the following method will be found more accurate than an ordinary pocket compass level a piece of ground a few feet square and plant in it a straight rod ab truly perpendicular testing with the plummet at an hour or two before noon say ten thirty a m mark accurately the extremity c of the shadow bc thrown by the rod the sun being at s then from the base b as a center with the radius BC, describe with a string, a circle CDF on the ground. As the sun's altitude increases, the shadow of the rod will gradually grow shorter until noon, after which it will grow longer until when the sun has reached the position S'. prime, The shadow will again reach the circumference of the circle at D. Divide the arc CD into two equal parts and from E, a point equidistant from C to D, draw the line b e this line will approximate closely to the true meridian e being of course north in north latitude torches when travelling in the dark torches may be needed if a dead pine tree can be found chop off one of the old stubs of limbs cutting deep into the trunk at the joint so as to get as much of the heavy resinous bulb as you can Cut a few splinters on this big end, if necessary, and light it. A bark torch is made by peeling several strips of birch bark four or five inches wide. Double or fold them two or three times, if these strips are long, and place these bunches in the split end of a stick for handle. A good torch is made by winding cotton yarn or rags around a forked stick in the form of a ball and soaking in oil or melted tallow. To make a pig-o-fire, cut a piece of fat pork around one by one by four inches, slit each end about one and a half inches, drive a sharpened stick through the center of the strip, and light these slit ends. It does not last long, but makes a good enough temporary flare. Southern Indians, when exploring caves, use joints of cane filled with deer's tallow and supplied with wicks. End of chapter 13